Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christchurch Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. And now it starts to go through some bits. Uh, probably starting one more minute as it climbs. Alrighty, thank you so much, uh, everyone, for joining us. We are so delighted to have with us uh, two incredible um, uh, leaders in the area of epidemiology and. Uh, we're, we're grateful for John Barry for taking time to be with us. Uh, John, John Barry is a, an American author and historian who's written books on the great Mississippi flood of 1927, the influence of pandemic of 1918, and the development of the modern uh, forms uh, and ideas of separation of church and state and individual liberty. He is the distinguished scholar and adjunct faculty at Tulane University. He is regularly sought after by policymakers and he has written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, Fortune, the Washington Post, Esquire, and other publications that frequently address, uh, appear um, uh, and other publications. And he frequently appears as a guest commentator on networks in the US, including NBC's Meet the Press, ABC's World News Tonight, PBS's The News Hour, and numerous NPR shows. Uh, and, and also on the BBC. Uh, John, we are absolutely delighted to have you with us, and we are so grateful that you've taken time to be with us tonight. Um, I also am happy to welcome to this webinar Dr. Paul Kilgore. Uh, Dr. Kilgore earned his doctorate of medicine in, uh, from Wayne State University School of Medicine. He completed his clinical residency training in internal medicine at the University of Michigan Health System. Uh, he has uh, completed further post-residency training in epidemic intelligence service at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. Uh, Dr. Kilgore served as the, at the International Vaccine Institute, where he conducted multidisciplinary translational research on vaccines and vaccine-preventable diseases. Uh, Dr. Kilgore has served on a number of U.S. National Institutes of Health study sections, and is currently a standing member of the Michigan State Medical Society Committee on Public Health, as well as an Infectious Disease Society of America and the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy. Dr. Kilgore, again, we are incredibly happy to have you with us as well. This is a real honor to have you two uh, with us tonight as we talk about um, the history of pandemics and what we can learn from the history of pandemics. And we're going to begin by turning to Dr. Barry and ask him uh, a kind of leading question. In, in, in his book, The Great Influenza, which is truly a, a, an incredible book, you make the, uh, you draw the distinction between how uh, the, the pandemic uh, was handled by the cities of Philadelphia and San Francisco. Can you say a little bit more about the, those two cities and how they handled it? And what was the cause for the, the differences 
and their response? We have to look at the uh, context. And that was, of course, the war. Um, and infrastructure had been created by the Wilson administration to keep morale up. And this included uh, uh, something called the Committee for Public Information. Uh, the architect of that committee uh, wrote that truth and falsehood are arbitrary terms. Nothing in experience teaches us that one is preferable to the other. Went on to say all that mattered was its impact. In other words, the government was prepared to mislead uh, and in some cases outright lie if they thought it would help the war effort. So with that infrastructure in place, the pandemic came along. The result was you had national public health leaders saying things like uh, the 1918 pandemic was referred to as the Spanish flu, although it did not start there. Uh, but you had national leaders saying, this is ordinary influenza by another name. Uh, another national public health leader said, you have nothing to fear if proper precautions are taken. This was not ordinary influenza by another name. Its uh, symptoms uh, initially led to misdiagnosis of dengue, cholera, typhoid. Uh, people could die in less than 24 hours. That didn't happen often, but it could happen. Uh, in the book, I quote a physician writing a colleague that uh, soldiers were turning, turning so dark blue from lack of oxygen uh, that he had difficulty distinguishing whites from African-Americans. Uh, so in Philadelphia, you had, and in most of the country, uh, you had even public health leaders echoing the lines from the national leadership. This is ordinary influenza by another name. Uh, and the result was, and people obviously, they see their neighbors, their spouse, people down the street dying sometimes horribly and sometimes with incredible speed. They knew it wasn't ordinary influenza by another name. Um, the result, they, they lost all trust in authority. And I think society ultimately is based on trust. Uh, it became everybody for himself or herself, every family for itself. Uh, and unlike most disasters where communities uh, tend to come together to help each other. Uh, society began to fray. It, it became, uh, it was so bad in terms of the lying that when Philadelphia belatedly finally closed schools, churches, saloons, banned all public gatherings, one of the newspapers there actually said, uh, this is not a public health measure. You have no cause for alarm. You know, how stupid did they think people were? And again, the result was uh, society began to fray. Uh, people actually were starving to death in Philadelphia because nobody had the courage to bring them food. San Francisco, by contrast, very unusual. Uh, the only city that I know of that behaved quite this way, although I'm sure there must have been others, at least a few others. Uh, the mayor, labor leaders, business leaders, medical community got together, jointly signed a statement, ran on a full page with huge type in the newspaper said, wear a mask and save your life. Now, that wasn't a lie as it turned out, you know, the masks didn't do any good. Uh, both cities actually were, I think, in the top five in the country in terms of excess mortality. 
but by being straight with the public, by telling them this is a lethal threat, the city of San Francisco hung together. Uh, when, when teachers, for example, uh, when they school, told, school, closed schools, uh, teachers volunteered for everything from telephone operators to ambulance drivers. Uh, blocks were organized, people were fed, uh, you know, people didn't die in their homes uncared for with nobody coming around to, it was just much better organized. And that community did rally. And I think the difference was in one, people were lied to and left therefore on their own. And the other, they were told essentially the truth or at least what the leadership believed was the truth. Uh, and it came together. After the pandemic, the Chronicle uh, wrote an editorial saying in the whole history of San Francisco before this and in the future, this will actually be looked on as one of the most glorious episodes in the city's history because of the way it came together. Uh, not that they didn't suffer terribly, they did. But it was a different feeling in San Francisco than you got not only in Philadelphia, but in many other places. I think it was directly related to the fact that in, in San Francisco, people were told the truth. Now, in your book, you, you tended to um, I speak about the fact that Philadelphia's, uh, the composition of political leadership in Philadelphia was driven in large part by leading families that kind of worked um, to hold things together and serve their own best interests, rather than maybe a better structured institutional network that San Francisco had. And you also talk a little bit about the fact that you know the press and that leadership were kind of tongue and groove in Philadelphia, whereas the in San Francisco it maybe had a slightly different relationship between the press and say the 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 political machine. Um, is that the case? Well, so, somewhat. Philadelphia had one of the most corrupt political machines in the country, so yeah. corrupt that a few years later, when they elected a someone to the United States Senate, which was controlled by the same party. The United States Senate refused to seat a member of its own party because of the corruption in, in the state of Pennsylvania led by that same Philadelphia machine. Uh, but there was, you know, as you were saying, there was a, a elite cohort uh, largely circling around the University of Pennsylvania, Rittenhouse Square, and so also that, uh, had a lot of influence on the way things worked. You know, the political machine and the, the, this group, uh, the mainline, so-called, you know, were at odds. The in in this case, uh, the the society people were much more interested in actually trying to do something uh, and do the right thing than the machine was. That's, I mean, it's a fascinating thing. And another, another point of interest to me, as we just get into your work with the 1918 epidemic is um, you, you also see kind of leading people that came to the fore. And we have, of course, uh, Anthony Fauci, who has done, you know, he's been at, 
in his position since is it really am I right in this since 1984 he's been right. in this position I mean that's an extraordinary yeah. tenure uh by by anybody I mean almost as long as Queen Elizabeth in terms of yeah. of tenure uh yeah, I think uh, he came to you, the NIH in 1974 in fact and uh 10 years later he got the position he's in it's a, and then you compare that with, say, William Welsh, who is your hero of your book, who was the, uh, was he chair of the faculty at Johns Hopkins and then later took well, the lead? He was the founding dean of the Johns Hopkins Medical School, uh, yes. which was, you know, revolutionary when it was founded and, and actually led the revolution in American medicine. Uh, medical schools in the U.S., in the late 1800s were beneath contempt. It was hard to imagine how bad most of them were. Anyone who could, the, the faculty was supported by uh, student fees. So if you could pay your tuition, chances were very good that you would be accepted in medical school. Uh, even at Harvard, you could fail four out of nine courses and still get your medical degree. Uh, when Hopkins, entered the uh, or, or began it, it was modeled after German universities very rigorous uh, had to have a good science education to apply and it, it really did set a standard that all of a sudden every other good medical school had to compete with then a, a couple of decades later there was a study by Abraham Flexner called the Flexner Report, known as the Flexner Report, uh, which revealed the scandal that American medical education was. And that came out, I guess, in 1910. And almost overnight, American medical education uh, changed and became equal to the best in the world. So we had this leaders, these leaders that came to the fore in 1918. And I guess the question is, do you see the same cadre of leaders or as deep a bench as it were in, 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 in 2020? Well, of course, the world is very different and the country is very different. You know, there are certainly top scientists involved. You know, Dr. Kilgore, I'm sure it can speak to that and I'm sure knows many of them. I know many of them, you know, both in, in you know, universities, at NIH, in the private sector. Uh, level of competence in the scientific community today is is outstanding not only in the u.s but around the world and obviously they're throwing everything at, at it uh, at this disease you don't have a single individual uh making as much of a difference as you did uh when the hopkins medical school was founded and and when welsh welsh was uh was largely the most important figure, not only in American medicine, but probably in American science. I want to, um, before we continue, I've got two more questions and I'm gonna turn it over to my incredibly able um, uh, co-panelist and co-moderator, Pastor Manisha Dostert, who has a background in, uh, in biological sciences and has worked as a researcher before she joined uh, the church. Um, we are gonna have some questions coming your way, folks. Uh, those of you who are sitting in on this incredibly important webinar, you'll see that there's a Q&A uh, button at the bottom of your screen. And, and already we have a great, um, great uh, follow-up question I'm going to get to in a moment. 
um, uh, which will pick up on the on the 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 um, on on the question around Boston and San Francisco, and we will probably circle back and see how that uh, 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 connects to Detroit. But if all of you who are watching us and following us, if you can just type your questions in, we'll get to them. Uh, and then uh, to return, I mean, the, the, the thing that, that strikes uh, anyone who knows a little bit about 1918 is the, 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 the fatality rate was so much higher. I think you, I think you estimate something like if, if this was to happen today, it would be 78 million people or 73 million people would be killed uh, by uh, the influenza. Uh, well, uh, 1918, the death toll was estimated between 50 and 100 million people. It's such a wide range because uh, the numbers from much of the developing world are very soft. Uh, but if you adjust that for population, that would be the equivalent of 220 to 440 million people today, which is obviously an astronomical number. And then you realize how compressed that the deaths were in the sense of timing. Roughly two thirds of the dead died in a period of about 14 or 15 weeks and from late September through December, 1918. And even then the, the PK, unlike normal influenza or coronavirus, uh, young people were dying. The peak age for death was 28. Uh, roughly two thirds of the dead were age 18 to 45 or so. Uh, and even worse than that, in, in, uh, according to Metropolitan Life, uh, factory workers, over 3% of the entire population of factory workers in that age group died in a matter of weeks. Uh, so it, it was certainly pretty, pretty terrifying. The uh, uh, one question that was a follow-up to the contrast between Philadelphia and San Francisco uh, is by a uh, wonderful parishioner named Catherine uh, Walby. And, and she asked the question as to whether or not the 1906 earthquake played a role in the preparedness of San Francisco. Well, I mean, that's a very good question. One I speculated about, but I don't really have an answer. Uh, you know, it didn't play any role in preparedness. It may have played a role in the way the community came together. Uh, yeah, I'm in New Orleans. It's not so long after Katrina. I can tell you that after Katrina, as difficult as things were, uh, this community very much rallied and supported each other. So I would guess something like that happened in San Francisco. Uh, and it may have played a role uh, in the, but the most important thing was that the leadership of the city trusted the public and that trust was returned. And as a result, the community did hang together. And, uh, and to, to turn a little bit to Dr. Kilgore with this, uh, if your experience of Detroit, does maybe some of our experience as a city that has gone through all of these uh, peaks and valleys, to, to put it mildly, uh, you know, in many ways we 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 had Katrina without the hurricane. Um, you know, did, did, has that prepared us? Are we in a better place? Are we more like uh, Boston, or are we more like San Francisco? That's a really good question. You know, I think when we think about Southeast Michigan, we think about Michigan in general. Um, it's a really really diverse area. 
And when we talk specifically about downtown Detroit or the city of Detroit, uh, from a public health standpoint, it's a different jurisdiction than Wayne County, Oakland County, Macomb County uh, that are nearby. And one of the things that I'm sure everyone knows and remembers well is all of the financial challenges that we've had since about 2008. So there was the Great Recession. And then after that, we had uh, the Detroit bankruptcy, um, which was really a challenge for the entire city and um, <clears throat> for the public health infrastructure as well. Uh, because one of the things that happened in Detroit after uh, the bankruptcy was that the Detroit Health Department became, um, I think you would describe it as a, a quasi-governmental organization, a non-governmental organization called, uh, called the Institute for Population Health or Population Sciences. And one of the things that they did is actually had those um, departments in that organization staffed by former Detroit Health Department staff. So that was good news that way. Unfortunately, they had to have a massive staff reduction. So the degree to which the city of Detroit could actually act on and engage with the community around public health was limited after that bankruptcy. And thankfully, um, in the past few years, as the uh, as Mayor Duggan has come on board and as, as we've seen kind of Detroit rise up economically, we've had a restoration of the health department. So it was reconstituted as the city of Detroit health department. And that's been a very good thing. It's been a very positive thing for the city of Detroit. Um, and it came about, I think, um, really um, a few years before our current year, um, which was a really good thing because if this had happened, say five to 10 years earlier or um, a short time ago, we would have been in a much more challenging situation, actually, in terms of responding to the pandemic in Detroit, where um, to begin with, the population has many different challenges, um, health-wise and economically. So to have a health department there functioning is a very, very important thing. Hmm. That's really, really helpful. And um, we, I want to get over to Pastor Manisha, but there was one question I thought I would uh, bring uh, bring forward, which is really uh, fascinating and kind of moves into the history of pandemics. And uh, this is from uh, a uh, person named Nancy uh, Wendangle. Um, uh, she says uh, this, the HMS Seahorse brought the terrible smallpox epidemic to Boston in 1721. And then she lets you know that she did her undergrad uh, graduate capstone course on Cotton Mather, uh, the great uh, Puritan preacher, and his opposition to, and his initial opposition, and then uh, his, uh, his, his change of position regarding inoculation during this epidemic. And she said that she read that the seahorse had been inspected before the crew, passengers, and cargo were permitted to disembark and be offloaded. Do you know what the so-called inspection entailed and what were the inspector's credentials? Did they go around feeling foreheads and that's it? Because I imagine the inspection was pretty uh, cursory. Now, I have learned not to underestimate your grasp of knowledge uh, even to the, to the uh, 18th century. So is this something you can clear up that when they did an inspection? So um, I can speak to that a little bit only from what I know about the disease. and. You know, when you look at smallpox clinically, um, 
it's quite apparent um, who may have it and who doesn't. Um, in the early phases of the illness, the prodrome, they may be febrile, but if someone is in more advanced stages of smallpox, you will see the smallpox marks on their skin. So it's a, it's a really kind of what we call a clinical diagnosis in that regard. So I can imagine an inspector walking around the ship would look for people who um, either are, look unwell, uh, you know, have malaise, feverish, um, or perhaps even are prostrate, lying down, trying to feel better, or they may be covering their skin to a large degree to hide the marks so that they're not discovered, or in an effort to reduce spread of the virus um, from one person to another. So I can imagine an inspector walking around would be searching for those types of individuals. Um, I don't think they were probably checking temperatures um, back then. Um, I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that they were probably more looking for individuals that were really clinically apparently with smallpox. Fascinating, that's amazing. I appreciate, uh, why don't we turn to, to Pastor Dostert? Um, thanks, thanks for um, being here, both of you, partly because uh, from a, from a perspective of a 21st century um, individual experiencing a pandemic, uh, you really don't think about 1918 until, until you realize that, that this has happened before in the United States. And, and so it's really helpful to go back and see what happened and what was um, similar and what was different. And I think especially um, from an ideological point of view and, um, and the epidemiology of the viruses. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about the history um, of, of sort of how, um, how the spread started of the, the 1918 great influenza virus. Dr. Barry, you said something about how it was called the Spanish flu, but not, not originating in Spain and what's that all about? Um, and then how, how did it spread and, um, and then and then maybe Dr. Kilgore, you can share um, some of the some of the um, etiology of it. What did it look like? Did it look like what it's looking like today for coronaviruses? What what's the difference? Okay, well, so Dr. Barry first. Sure. Uh, Spain was not at war, and it wrote about the disease during the first wave, which actually was unusually mild. Uh, the warring countries had a censored press, didn't want to write anything that would depress morale again. Uh, and it picked, and the King of Spain got sick as well. And so that drew attention and became known as Spanish flu. We don't know where it began. In my book, I advanced a hypothesis and even wrote a scientific journal article uh, proposing Kansas. Uh, but that was 16 years ago. A lot of work has occurred since then. And I'm backed off my own hypothesis. I think the most likely place is China. Uh, however, there's a you know, very good influenza virologist who argues for France. Uh, Vietnam is another uh, hypothesis. So we will probably never know where it began. Uh, it doesn't really matter. I mean, even in the 1600s, even before the smallpox episode uh, just discussed, uh, an influenza pandemic made it from Europe to uh, Virginia and Massachusetts, where it was quite devastating. Uh, so you don't need airplanes or even steam power uh, to spread a pandemic around much of the world. Um, there was a first wave 
which was very spotty, probably missed a lot more places than it hit. And some countries didn't get it at all. Uh, that, that was in the spring. Uh, although it did hit both armies in the field in France pretty hard. Uh, that seemed to disappear. Uh, but then in, uh, in September, it resurfaced. The virus, in my view, mutated into a lethal form. Uh, there are some who see, I think this is a distinctly minority view, and I could give many reasons why I think it's mistaken, but there's such a difference in virulence between the spring and fall wave. There are, there are some people actually think they were different viruses. As I say, I can give you all sorts of evidence why I think that's wrong. Uh, that second wave did spread worldwide. I mean, everywhere uh, from Alaskan villages to African villages uh, and islands in the middle of the Pacific. Um, there was then a uh, third wave uh, that began in February 1919, which was lethal by any standard except the second wave. Uh, again, most of the deaths, probably about two thirds of the total occurred in the second wave. Uh, there was another, I wouldn't necessarily call it a wave, but a seasonal occurrence uh, in, in 1920, uh, in that winter, uh, which was tamped down uh, compared to what the third wave had been, but still killed a you know, pretty good number of people. Yeah, the, the idea that it, it comes again <laughs> is really, um, that was difficult to hear um, about the three waves and, and some, 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 some cities actually had to do social distancing or have some sort of program twice um, is what my, my understanding is. Um, right, or more than Dr. twice, frankly. Yeah, oh, really, yeah. Dr. Kilgore, um, how, what, what did this virus do to people? So, you know, influenza viruses uh, like the ones that we have around today are really, um, at the heart of it, they're respiratory tract infections, but actually they can become systemic. And, and for many people, um, they can actually get what we call a viremia. And one of the things that's interesting about the Spanish flu is back when they were looking at what was causing it, um, they were using microscopic techniques that would only allow them to identify bacteria. And a few years earlier, before the Spanish flu pandemic, uh, there was a bacteria identified called Haemophilus influenzae, which is a cause of pneumonia and meningitis and sepsis. But when, when people were looking for the pathogen causing the Spanish flu, um, they were only using techniques that could actually identify bacteria. And so they actually were, I think, operating almost with two hands tied behind their back both diagnostically and from a treatment perspective. And they were also operating in an era where they had really no antibiotics. So one of the things that we know, we went back and we analyzed data from all the pandemics. And one of the things that we learned um, from our analysis is that even back in the Spanish flu pandemic, individuals who got influenza were also getting what we call the super infections or co-infections with bacteria. And the most common bacteria that were causing those were Streptococcus pneumoniae, Haemophilus influenza, and Staph aureus. And all of these, when you throw that bacteria on top of a influenza infection, 
it can be truly deadly. And what we think is that a lot of people were dying because of that co-infection that they were experiencing, because in effect, we had no treatment. So as a physician, the doctors were simply standing by providing supportive care and helping them when they could. There was some ways to give oxygen, um, but in fact, there's, there was no mechanical ventilation really. So from a supportive care standpoint, they also had two hands tied behind their back. And, you know, it must have been really, really, really incredibly difficult to be a doctor taking care of these patients uh, because all you could do is really just basically stand there and watch them and watch them die, really. It's interesting. Yeah, Go ahead. One question that's coming in to us. Um, not, I, I don't want to keep you from following up, Pastor, but I just want to, this seemed to be a time to, to tie this in is there also, uh, in 1918, there was a lot of mutation of the virus as well that happened. And so one of the things that Dr. Berry talks about is as the, as the, um, as the, the infection moves from the major cities and goes to smaller areas, it tended to become less virulent and, and uh, went through several different changes. And then maybe, is it right, uh, can you say more about this? Because I'm, I'm having a hard time recalling exactly what you said in your book, Dr. Berry, but but is that going to be the case with COVID-19? Uh, one of the most curious things about that is the later in the pandemic you got sick, even in a city like Philadelphia, the, you know, if you got sick in week one, it was more virulent. In week five, it seemed to be less virulent. That's actually pretty well established by some very, very good epidemiologists, uh, associated with Hopkins, Frost, and Seidenstricker. And I don't really have an explanation for it other than the, the virus is mutating and becoming less virulent. Um, you know, maybe Dr. Kilgore has another hypothesis. Uh, you know, one of the things about the 1918 virus, which is unusual for influenza, uh, is that like the coronavirus, it could bind to cells in your upper respiratory tract, which made it easily transmissible, but it could also bind to cells deep in the lung, which essentially meant you started out with something akin to viral pneumonia. Uh, and again, the same thing is happening with the coronavirus. Uh, I think probably a majority of the deaths were caused by secondary infections, but I think a very significant minority of the deaths were caused directly by the virus, but by exactly the same process that's occurring now, which referred to as a cytokine storm, create which it basically means your immune system is trying to destroy the virus, but the battlefield is your lung and it's wiping out the lung, causing acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, I don't know if Dr. Kilgore agrees with that or wants to add anything to it, but. Yeah, those are great points, uh, John. And I think. One of the things um, about influenza that we know is that it is frequently changing. So it goes through some minor genetic changes and some major changes, uh, shift and drift. And one of the things that we know is that the influenza viruses that infect us also infect other animals, particularly swine. And it's that mixing of the flu virus with other species that actually enables it to get new genes and uh, become actually a completely different bug that we haven't seen before to which we not have immunity. You know, in the case of coronavirus, one of the interesting things I wanted to uh, point out to people is there's a really 
um, great uh, research team that uh, has a website called nextstrain.org. And nextstrain.org is doing what we call genomic epidemiology. And that really is and entails sequencing the entire virus or parts of the virus, and then mapping them out and comparing across different countries. And one of the things that hasn't been talked a lot about so far in the press is the fact that we have genetic subtypes or clades, C-L-A-D-E-S, of coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, that are now circulating in the world. <clears throat> what we don't know very well is how these different strains may correlate with different clinical syndromes. And so I'm sure you're gonna be hearing more about this as we go through different parts of the year. And the question becomes, are people who get more severe disease getting infected with a particular subtype of coronavirus? And will future drugs and future vaccines be effective against all of the strains or subtypes of coronavirus or these clades? And also this epidemiology, this type of analysis will tell us how quickly or how much the coronavirus is mutating or changing over time. And one of the things that you've probably seen are what we call these phylogenetic trees. These are basically little maps telling us the differences in coronaviruses. And they do it for other viruses as well, like flu. And back in 2003 and four, when I was in China and Asia working working there during the first SARS epidemic, uh, they have strains left over from that time. And now we can compare those strains to what we see with the novel coronavirus. And even though the genetic differences are relatively small, there is still quite a big difference in the clinical presentation of the disease. And the other virus to also take note of is the Middle Eastern coronavirus, the MERS coronavirus. That is a different virus than the, our current one, and it's different from the one that caused disease back in 2003 and four as the first SARS epidemic or pandemic. And what's interesting is that even though they're the same family, genetically they're different, and clinically uh, they're quite a bit different. And one of the things you'll probably remember from the Middle Eastern coronavirus epidemic is that the case fatality rate was quite a bit higher than what we're seeing now in fact, um, it was um, quite scary at the time, and uh, we didn't take a huge note of it globally, um, but if that virus had spread, like our current coronavirus is spreading, we would have a much bigger problem on our hands um, than we currently do. Well, in fact, uh, South Korea had, a, uh, had an outbreak of MERS, which is one reason why they reacted so quickly to, uh, to this virus. And of course, they also had experience with SARS. That's right. Yeah, I, I, you know, I lived, when I lived in uh, Asia, I was based in Seoul, Korea at a place called the International Vaccine Institute. And I remember during the first SARS epidemic and then a few years later thinking to what Korea was doing with MERS and, and now their response uh, has been talked a lot about and how good it has been. Um, but one of the reasons that it's been so good is that you know, a practice makes perfect, actually. And uh, they've had a lot of practice in South Korea. Um, they have great technology. They have great biotechnology industry. Um, there's good government, private sector collaboration. They have a National Health Insurance Corporation, um, which has a national health system. Um, the barrier to access to care is very, very low. 
Um, if you need to see a doctor, get into any doctor, um, you just walk in basically. Um, and then the last thing also I would point out is that in Korea, even when I was there, um, starting around 1998, I noticed that people would wear a mask, a face mask, even though they had very, very minor symptoms. So face mask usage there was culturally very well accepted, almost required if you had any symptoms. And I think that's also an important con contributing factor. Mm. Pastor. Um, so, so thinking, thinking about um, the, the work that you had indicated, Dr. Berry, um, that the scientists were doing and Dr. Kilgore, uh, these scientists really didn't have a lot of the, of the um, knowledge that we have today, 100 years later. They didn't even know that, that the Spanish flu or the influenza was caused by a virus. Um, so, so there was um, a lot of kind of um, guessing and hard work by, by these amazing scientists. Um, what, were, what were some of the, the breakthroughs that happened because of the great influenza? For us, they were a good scientist. They didn't have our tools, but they were certainly as smart as, as anybody around today. In fact, one of the people in the book won the Nobel Prize in 1966 for work he did in 1911. Uh, they won't give the prize until they know you're correct in what you uh, uh, hypothesize. So it was 55 years before people caught up to the, uh, this gentleman, uh, Peyton Rouse. Uh, you know, number one, they were doing some things that we do today or trying convalescent serum. Uh, they knew how to make vaccines, but they did not know the target against the vaccine. They, they didn't even know what a virus was. They knew they were very, very small organisms. They called them filterable viruses. Uh, they would pass through the smallest filter, but they didn't know if they were a different kind of organism or just a really tiny bacteria. Uh, that discovery or definition came out of research on influenza in the mid 20s. Uh, they developed uh, pneumonia vaccines against uh, several kinds of bacteria. Uh, if you get a anti-pneumococcus vaccination today, it's a pretty much a straight line development, uh, a descendant of, of what they developed back then. Those did not get uh, wide, those vaccines did not get widely distributed uh, except, you know, a few military camps really. Um, some of the, probably the most important discovery that you could argue came out of the pandemic. I didn't come for about 25 years. Uh, and there's a saying in basic science, you may have heard, I'm sure you've heard it. I'm sure Dr. Kilgore has heard it and probably most of the audience. You shoot an arrow into the air and wherever it lands, you paint the target. Uh, Oswald Avery, who is uh, kind of an inspirational figure to me, went through great difficulties over the course of 25 years, uh, but he ended up, started out studying the pneumococcus and pneumonia, ended up discovering that DNA carried the genetic code, which without a doubt, is one of the most important and arguably even the most important discovery in the biological sciences in the 20th century. Uh, you can make a good case that that came out of uh, the influenza pandemic. Yeah, I was, um, I was really impressed with, um, with the fact that a pandemic, um, really a tragedy can lead to, to um, 
enormous work that would then um, utterly change the way that we understand um, science, but also gave us insight into uh, the mysteries of life. Um, you know, in, inevitably because because of the work that that Avery did, and then Watson and Crick's work, we now understand um, DNA and 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 everything past that. Given um, what Dr. Kilgore is saying now about the genetic makeup of coronaviruses. So all of that is really helpful. Um, and I could geek out on this, but we also we also should talk about um, what's going on um, today, um, especially in Detroit. Um, and so um, Father Bill, I think you have a couple of questions. Sure, I mean, we, we have a couple, I, you know, as we move into that and we, there are a couple of, of um, I wouldn't call them geeky. They're actually, there's they're scientific questions about the alternative to vaccines being direct therapeutic procedures or, or things like ZPAC and uh, hydrochloroquine. Um, and I'm just wondering if you, uh, Dr. Kilgore or, or Dr. Berry could offer just some insight on that as we make that shift, um, as well as, you know, um, the one thing that I think was most controversial that you said, Dr. Berry, uh, at some point was uh, in 2020 in February is you at the time thought that um, COVID-19 was way ahead of where we were testing that had already advanced its way into places. I, I think everybody knew anything about the pandemic threats recognize that. I'm sure Dr. Kilgar was watching events in China uh, and knew the same thing. Uh, I know in early or mid-January around the 10th or 12th, something like that, became very apparent to probably everybody who knows anything about pandemics that this was a very, very serious threat and, and likely uh, to become a pandemic. Uh, I actually wrote an op-ed that ran in the Washington Post in January that I originally titled, this virus cannot be contained, although I softened that to a question, can this virus be contained? Probably not. Uh, so I, it's kind of frustrating to see the White House for a period of a couple of months trivialize the whole thing, and almost as if it was some democratic plot to undermine the, the presidency, which I almost wish it were. Unfortunately, it's real, and obviously where you are in Detroit, it's very much a hot spot as it is where I am in New Orleans. And then uh, Dr. Kilgore about uh, things like ZPAC and uh, hydrochloroquine. So, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that happens when, you know, a new virus emerges like this is that we immediately begin searching for new treatments or effective treatments. And you've heard of one drug that's been repurposed. The, the drug name is remdesivir. Uh, that was originally developed as an antiviral for Ebola virus. It didn't work really very well for Ebola, um, but that uh, drug has actually been evaluated now in China and there's studies going on elsewhere. Um, and some early data that was published just uh, about a week ago, um, suggesting that it may lead to some clinical improvement, although it was a, really a case series in the New England Journal. It wasn't a, a tried and true randomized controlled trial. With, hyd uh, with the hydroxychloroquine and the azithromycin combinations and other drugs, we're repurposing drugs that actually have in the laboratory, uh, when we put them in vitro uh, with different viruses, they actually do have some antiviral activity. 
Um, interestingly, azithromycin, which was an antibiotic for treatment of bacterial infections, also in the laboratory has antiviral activity. Doxycycline is another common antibiotic. It actually has antiviral activity. Um, there's a drug that we use for river blindness in Africa called ivermectin that actually has some antiviral activity. And so these are all being looked at as potential treatments. Um, we've never actually had a chance to look at any of these with coronavirus. These were not looked at in the first SARS epidemic, really. And so we're in really new territory right now. Uh, we've learned a lot of how this virus acts and behaves. Um, it gains entry into cells through um, a, a channel that, or a, a, um, a receptor that also relates to treatment of hypertension. Um, so it's one of the reasons why people who have high blood pressure seem to be at higher risk for this particular virus. So that's an inter interesting twist. Um, there are other treatments or preventive uh, strategies being looked at. One is TB vaccine. People are trying to look at whether or not use of TB or vaccinating people with TB vaccine will provide protection against severe coronavirus disease. The principle behind that is that BCG is a general immunostimulator and it stimulates the immune system enough in different ways in the T cells and B cells to actually stimulate enough protection to keep people from getting severely ill. Those studies are going on in Australia and Netherlands right now. There's a couple of new treatments as well that are being investigated and of course a lot of new vaccines. So I do, I do have some real good hope for the future that we're gonna find some of these things that do work or at least help mitigate severe disease. And certainly one of the things that's being looked at is convalescent plasma. We know that that worked back with the SARS epidemic, the first SARS epidemic, it was actually tried. So we know that there's evidence for that. Um, it's worked for Ebola in the past to some extent. Um, now those studies are going on right now for the new coronavirus. So we should be getting some data on that as well. Um, so there's a lot of uh, interesting things going on. Um, so I, time will tell. Hopefully in the next few months, we'll actually see some results coming through on these studies. Wow. And that's incredible. And, you know, of course we don't, uh, this is the kind of um, fine-grained analysis that we don't always see in um, in, in news reports on this. And so that's incredibly comforting to know just the, just the, the incredible span of, of um, things that are being tried to someone who just follows this in the newspaper. Um, you know, one of the things- One other interesting thing, before I forget, I need to tell yeah, you. Please, please. There's a professor in uh, Detroit, actually his name is Ananda Prasad, and uh, he has spent his entire life studying zinc. And what's interesting about hydroxychloroquine is that it acts as a, a ionophore for zinc. Zinc by itself has some antiviral activity, uh, but it helps if it's inside the cell. And one of the things that a combination of hydroxychloroquine and zinc might. I think we might have might lost have a little bit of Dr. Kilgore. He was talking about Dr. Prasad. Dr. Prasad actually is an Episcopalian um, and uh, is well known to our <laughs> congregation, to some in our congregation. Um, yeah. He is local um, and he has, he has been working um, on zinc for a number of years and um, and uh, is is committed to trying to figure out if that's going to help 
um, alleviate the symptoms. Oh, there you are, Dr. Yeah. Kilgore. Yay. Yes, you're back. We got you. Uh, you you so. were just at that. You're, you were describing zinc and actually uh, yeah. Pastor Manisha picked up where you left off, believe it or not. So, but you can Thank go you. back and just make sure she got it right. So you just said zinc and getting it into the cells. <laughs> yeah, actually the uh, hydroxychloroquine acts as an ionophore, opening the channels helps zinc get inside and has more powerful antiviral effects. Um, so zinc is a really interesting uh, component of potential future treatments. And hopefully some of the studies going on with zinc right now will shed more light on that and how we can use it uh, going forward. And, and I, 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 there are so many questions we could be asking and, and some of these are so important. And, I, and folks, those of you who are participating, I'm, I, I, I realize I missed a nuance in one question and we're gonna do our best to, to make a couple of turns here now because I think some of the experience that Dr. Kilgore has is not only in research, but also in clinical studies. And maybe as a way to segue to that, um, you know, one of the things that is interesting about the uh, 1918 uh, pandemic is that the level of morbidity among African-Americans was relatively low. The mortality rate was high, but the level of morbidity, morbidity the number of people who actually uh, contracted the virus was comparatively low. And people have had different theories as to why that was the case. Of course, that isn't the case in Detroit. Um, and I'm wondering if you can maybe answer that as you move into talking a little bit about your clinical experience with COVID-19 in Detroit. No, this is a very important topic. And when we look at overall population health in different parts of the country, um, one of the things that we know from one survey I'll tell you about, it's called the BRFSS survey. It stands for Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance. And it's actually funded by CDC. It's a telephone-based survey, and it's done in many different states. Uh, but essentially, it's asking about the health of different people across the state. And one of the things that we know is that about 30% of the African-American population in, in Detroit actually reported that they had fair to poor health. And this was a few years ago, actually well before the pandemic. We also know in many urban areas, in low-income areas, we have very few healthcare facilities where people can go very quickly or easily to get care. We also know there are transportation challenges. Many people don't have a car and they have to rely on bus transportation. Many people still don't have health insurance. So even if they did get to the doctor, the clinic, or the hospital, they don't have a means to pay for that care. So what that tends to do is it has people delaying their access to care because they know when they get there, the hospital is gonna ask them to pay something. So they're very worried about that. Of course, the other thing to keep in mind is that when people are short on money and economically strapped, even though the doctor they have recommends that they take a high blood pressure medication or a diabetes medication or a heart med, chances are they may skip a medication or cut back or not take the entire prescription because they simply can't afford it or they're trying to save pills to save money. And when that happens, that means that they're not having, having good control of the condition that they already have. And high blood pressure is a great example, diabetes is, pulmonary disease, asthma is quite prevalent in, Mich in Michigan and Southeast Detroit and Southeast Michigan. 
there's one area in southwest Detroit um, which has very high incidence of asthma, actually. We also know that people um, and rates of smoking uh, would be a risk factor. And anyone who is immunosuppressed would be at risk for severe coronavirus disease. Um, and so when you put all these together into one population, you can begin to quickly see how people would be behind the eight ball even from the very beginning of this pandemic. Wow. And you've had some experience in the clinic, in the clinics. And, you know, one question that came our way is, you know, Beaumont recently closed its hospital in Wayne. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, there's obviously a tension between uh, the, the, the well-being of people health-wise and the, and, the, and the functioning of the economy. I mean, even though the president has been fairly notorious in making these calculations public, I think uh, in this respect, he is speaking for a number of people who privately wonder at what cost uh, is, this, is this social distancing uh, uh, hurting us. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit, paint a picture about what it's like to, to work clinically in Detroit to address um, uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, um, infections? So there's a couple of perspectives I could add. Uh, one is that, um, you know, when you talk about emergency departments or intensive care units in large hospitals like Detroit Receiving Hospital, Harper, or Henry Ford Hospital downtown or other hospitals, um, the number of patients that are coming in um, means that they cannot, they cannot simply admit everyone that comes in. So they're immediately what happens is a triaging system is put in place. So individuals that have mild illness, even though they have COVID-19, will go home. And they'll go home getting recommended to take uh, supportive measures, basically Tylenol or fever-lowering medicine, and rest and fluids, much like you would do for, you know, several years ago for flu. Um, then the next tier are people that have some kind of deficiency in breathing. So either they're short of breath or they're not getting enough oxygen as judged by what we call a pulse oximeter. That's that little measurement you put on your finger, little clip tells you how much oxygen is in your blood. Or in some cases we'll do an arterial blood gas to get that. Uh, but when you do that, you make a judgment based on those data as to whether or not the patient should come in or not. You also do a clinical judgment to see if it looks like they're getting worse. And if they're headed in the wrong direction, those are going to be people that would almost certainly get admitted. And they get up to a floor and they get oxygen therapy and other supportive uh, therapy like IV fluids. And then uh, there's a third group. That third group are those people that come in the door who look like they could be in imminent danger of respiratory failure. And it's those people that are getting intubated. So they go immediately on the ventilator. And it's this number of patients that everyone's worried about because once people get into that mode of requiring uh, ventilation and supportive care in an ICU, it means that they're gonna be in there for several days. It's, it can be very difficult to get a patient off the ventilator when they have advanced disease that advanced disease we call ARDS, or Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. ARDS can be very difficult to reverse. Um, the lung will heal slowly. And even a patient on a ventilator um, can have lung damage ongoing 
um, even on the ventilator. So it can be really, really challenging. Yeah. The other, the other perspective I need to tell you quickly is, you know, in a clinic um, that actually Mayor Duggan helped set up uh, by getting rapid diagnostic tests in the Detroit Health Department. We've been there testing now for several days and we started with first responders. So police, fire, EMS, as well as uh, DOT and bus drivers and other, other workers from the government. And, you know, one of the things I think that people found surprising is that we had individuals walking in the door um, who were not terribly symptomatic. You would look at them and say, well, you know, they don't look well, but they don't look in absolute respiratory distress. A lot of these individuals who were positive by our test. Luckily, these were individuals that we could instruct um, to be able to take care at home. Of course, they have to isolate at home and take care of themselves and rest. Um, we gave instructions, of course, if you get sicker, you know, make sure you talk with your doctor or go to the emergency department. But these individuals were very upset too. And I think one of the things we forget about this illness is that uh, there's a huge um, component, um, mental health component, emotional component that people are grappling with. And you immediately see that stress on people when they get the announcement or the news that they have a COVID positive test, it changes everything for a lot of people. And um, it's one of the things that people are really not um, mentally or emotionally prepared necessarily to deal with. So we provide some guidance to them and resources in addition to the medical, physical resources that they can get. We point them to other social service resources and the like so they can actually get uh, care in that way too. Yeah, it's funny, I, Dr. Berry um, mentioned this a lot in, in the closing part of his book about the, the, the level of suicidality going up, the level of, there was actually, you, you actually made the, the argument, Dr. Berry, that there was a connection between um, uh, the, the uh, viral infection and actually uh, mental processing um, that, oh, yeah. that would affect mood, yeah? Yeah, that wasn't so much me as, uh, you know, there was a very comprehensive study uh, sponsored by the American Medical Association uh, that was published in 1927. And it concluded, I think the phrasing was something like second only to pulmonary difficulties were mental difficulties. Uh, it was widely remarked. Uh, you know, schizophrenia normally uh, you don't recover from that, but there were people diagnosed with schizophrenics who did recover. Uh, the people Oliver Sacks wrote about in The Awakening yeah. uh, hypothesized that uh, they were actually victims of uh, the 1918 virus. Uh, there was a disease referred to as encephalitis lethargica, which is kind of self-explanatory, uh, which emerged in the 20s that seemed to be linked uh, to the 1918 virus. Uh, so that, you know, they didn't have molecular biology and, you know, the ability of a pathologist to see what was going on, whether the virus could cross a blood-brain barrier or, or some toxins released by, by the body. Uh, that's not clear, but it was so widely remarked uh, that, you know, I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming that that was the case. There seems to be, you know, one one person that uh, wrote on this that we we had on our webinar is a psychologist uh, operating out of the University of British Columbia, 
And he made the remark that the psychological footprint of a pandemic is larger than its medical footprint because it, it kind of spreads through a society and, um, and, it, be, and it, kind of, in, it kind of creates several different you know, offshoots of mental illness that come out of it. And uh, are either of you seeing that now? And you know, um, not to not to go on, but one thing that I um, I I found fascinating at uh, my uh, uh, wonderful our, our our organizer for this um, uh, webinar, Meredith Skaronsky, was doing some digging, and she read an old um, an old uh, issue of Science Magazine, uh, and it was uh, someone uh, George Soper who was the Representative oh, great the epidemiologist. Yes, he uh, and uh, the Sanitary Corps was his group, which of course started in uh, uh, the Civil War. And he had a list of things, uh, 12 steps to take, which you actually quote in your book, uh, Dr. Berry, as having been put out in 1918. And this was under the title of what to what we learned from the uh, 1918 influenza epidemic. And he said things like, um, you know, uh, wash your face, uh, keep, you know, keep, keep, keep clean mouth, clean skin, clean clothes, uh, try to keep cool when you walk, um, you chew know, all your food, uh, yes, chew all your food, avoid tight clothes, tight shoes and tight gloves. And then when the air is pure, breathe all of it. You can breathe deeply. So as opposed to the normal way you breathe and, uh, you know, uh, what was fascinating to me about that is that 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 list, which you cover, I think it was was it the uh, the Red Cross put that out in 1918, and then it got repeated. Is it's funny when when it comes to actually saying something to people about what they've learned, um, they end it. There's almost like a an element of denial that happens. You have a default that you go to, and you you give this kind of these bromides of advice, but then underneath it in the society, when you look at the literature, when you look at the way that's, that the, 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 the untold trauma that infects the culture and that doesn't get talked about as much except obliquely, are we setting ourselves up for the same kind of thing where that, that, that level of trauma is just gonna shadow us for uh, a few years? Well, I think probably uh, this is a pretty unsettling experience right now. Uh, for everybody. Uh, the social distancing in place in most of the United States is considerably more extreme than was done in 1918. Uh, no city closed down businesses, uh, none that I know of anyway. You know, they, they closed places of public gatherings, uh, but that was it by fiat anyway. However, absenteeism, fear, and, and keeping you know, you stay home if you're sick, obviously, because you couldn't go out or because you're caring for someone or because you're afraid. You know, absenteeism was probably in the 70 to 80% range from a lot of jobs. Uh, and that effectively shut down the economy. Um, but the thing in 1918, it was much faster moving. Uh, the disease would go through a community in six to 10 weeks, and then it was essentially gone. What we're facing now is, is much slower. Influenza's incubation period is probably, uh, well, the average is about two days. It can go to four days. 
Uh, this is two to 14 days. Uh, the average is like 5.8 days, something like that, almost triple. And that whole, and plus the disease moves more slowly through the body. Uh, it takes you longer to recover. Uh, the whole thing is slowed down. And that puts an incredible management strain on everybody trying to make a decision of how to bring the economy back. And it's, it stresses everyone involved. Uh, plus we don't have the distraction of World War I, uh, which actually probably took some people's minds off influenza. Uh, although I may have overstated that because in the middle of a pandemic with people dying around you, you're probably just focused on, on the immediate surroundings. Uh, you know, I, this is already, you know, we've been shut down for a month in New Orleans with no sign of that ending. Uh, and it just moved faster in 1918. Uh, and it was easier to recover uh, economically. And I'm not sure about mentally, uh, but in terms of the economy and going back to work and so forth, that was much simpler. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I would say that I would, I think, I think that the question about the mental health of those, those who are finding out that they are positive for, um, for COVID-19, as you're pointing out, Dr. Kilgore, and, um, and, and certainly um, those of us who are anxious because of these weird circumstances in which we find ourselves. And then, and then the idea of, of the cessation of social distancing. And what is that going to look like? And and you know, uh, how are we going to do that in a way uh, without if we don't have antibodies uh, testing capability and we can't tell who had it and who not who doesn't? And we don't have vaccines. All yeah. of these things sort of add to a general anxiousness that certainly we in the church are are um, are experiencing and hearing and um, and walking with people whose. Um, whose fears are real. Um, I, I'm just gonna ask Father Bill to sort of, you know, share um, his vision on, on, on the work that we do um, in the church to be able, and in faith communities, to be able to walk with people in, in these times of great anxiousness. But, but I will add um, that, that I believe, I believe that um, having read um, your book, Dr. Barry, I found it, in the midst of a pandemic, incredibly comforting, and and I think the reason was because um, because it's in it's extraordinary how far we've come in a hundred years, and uh, and what we know and what we're capable of. We live in a, a digital society in which um, knowledge is shared quickly, and um, and vastly, and um, and there's there's more opportunities to to understand um, and with that comes comes greater greater knowledge of how to manage and cope and then there's also ways to um, to have hope so I found your book hopeful in the midst of a pandemic even though um, it was a great tragedy back then and um, and I do I do believe that Dr. Kilgore's work in Detroit is also very hopeful. Yeah, I, just to pick up on that, it, it just as we um, uh, start to move on some some from science, some final questions, not that we want to, we could go all day, but we, we want to respect your time. Um, I would say that 
there are uh, hearing what you just said, Dr. Kilgore, about the level of care that's being given in Detroit is uh, even in spite of significant um, challenges around uh, in, inequity and, and racial disparity that are, are part of what it means to be in Detroit for the past uh, several generations um, is, is quite, is actually pretty hopeful. It, it, I mean, there does seem to be uh, a, a more robust response to things than we had a few years ago. There is, um, there certainly is more testing that's being done more recently than in the past. So that things, people, more people are being tested. Um, it also is the case that there's more transparency about who is being affected by the, the disease most. And, 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 and that's something that is unique uh, with what Detroit is doing. And, and so I do think there's many rays of hope here, uh, even in, in spite of this. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I, absolutely right. And you know, there's a couple of things that you've heard about in the news that are actually pretty inspiring. And you know, you've heard a lot about the frontline healthcare workers and how they're you know putting their lives at risk on the line every day, and that's actually really happening. Um, but one of the other things that's happening is that people are doing their jobs without adequate personal protection. We call it PPE. And I don't have pictures to show you, but even today when I was shown the gowns that people are wearing uh, in some of the nursing homes, it, it's clear that we know what people should be wearing, but not everyone has that equipment. We're working hard to make sure that they get that equipment. They will get that equipment, um, but there's areas still where PPE is not widespread available, and that's happening across the country. That's a big issue. So I'm hopeful that's gonna change. I know the diagnostic situation is improving. You're gonna see a lot more tests getting out there uh, to the population, but we really need to ramp that up in, in a huge, huge effort um, so that we can test as many people as we can that are symptomatic and do that contact tracing you know, and that great public health work. And, and the other thing I'm hopeful about actually is that when we're done with this, um, this, at least this year or hopefully next year, one of the things that we're going to learn from this is what we need to do to have very, very strong public health. So if we do have something like this happen again, we're not going to be in that situation, you know, that we were in the beginning of this year. And my, you know, my uh, great grandfather, a guy named Bert Estabrook, was a deputy health commissioner back in the 1930s and 40s in Detroit. And I would love to have been able to talk to him because he was a young doctor in the 19, uh, 18, 19, 19 pandemic. And I would have loved to hear his stories about his experience. But my sense of public health after the pandemic is that it got kind of a boost. People started to realize that it was really important. In Detroit, in, um, in his era, um, his boss was a guy named Henry Vaughn. And at the Bentley Historical Library, and John will probably love this, uh, there's these bins full of memorabilia and records from that time in Detroit's public health history. So I have a bunch of copies here somewhere in my office, and I'll have to share them with you, John, because when you read them, you realize back then that Detroit had one of the best health departments in the country. They were really kind of leaders at the forefront of public health. And I'm hopeful for the future because I think we can get back to that point um, for Detroit and other urban areas and, and really, really support public health, strengthen it across this country so we don't have this uh, same situation again. Uh, and Henry Vaughn, that was no accident. Henry Vaughn's father 
was uh, Victor Vaughn, who's Dean of the University of Michigan Medical School, and with William Wells, one of the uh, people who helped revolutionize American med medical education. Uh, and his brother, Warren Vaughn, was in Boston. Uh, offline, I'll talk to you about uh, Henry Vaughn and a study of his that I read about 1918 and 1920. That is, that is uh, it's so nice that we could be the conduit of this, to have you guys have this connection to each other. Um, you know, the one thing that did come to my mind that was uh, strangely hopeful, there's a, a book about the, um, the National Health Service in Britain uh, and, it, and it's in its, uh, its origin and it's called Austerity Britain. Uh, well, uh, good, good history of, of, of healthcare. And the argument was that it was the result of all of the measures that had to be taken during World War II uh, and all of the ways in which the, uh, the Battle of Britain uh, brought together the classes and had them share sacrifices together and defend the country together, that actually it was that shared sense of debt to each other that began to uh, emerge. And it was from there that that sensibility um, actually stood behind and provided the kind of moral argument that a health, uh, a, 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 a national health system needs in order to come into being. And um, I don't want to suggest that we're going to have uh, anything like what um, the UK has. Uh, but I do think that public health issues are going to be undeniable at this point, given, given what we are experiencing today. And so I can't imagine a more you know, robust public health system not emerging from this, uh, from this pandemic. And, um, and similarly, something you said, Dr. Barry, that I thought was uh, fascinating in a, in a remarks you made in, at St. Olaf's College and uh, 2020, uh, February 2020, is you said you believe, and this is, I, I don't want to betray my complete um, biases, but you you looked at uh, the anti-vaccination movement with a little bit of scorn uh, and derision, and uh, you said, well, those people are going to get drowned out after COVID-19. Um, do you still think that, and what gives you, what gives you hope? Well, uh, you know, people want to be safe. Yeah. And uh, I cannot imagine someone not wanting a vaccination against this threat. It just yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. The, there are a couple it of things I want to say. either. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exactly, but they finally have been. There were a couple of things I want to make our, our group aware of as we start to move towards the close. We have a couple more um, webinars planned. Next Wednesday at this same bat time, at this same bat station, we're going to have uh, the Lieutenant Governor is going to come and be with us. And we're going to have a panel of dis uh, people to discuss uh, his role uh, as the new chair of the um, task force that Governor Whitner uh, put, in, put in place to study the intersection of race and inequality in pandemic. So he's going to be here to talk about that very important issue. And, you know, uh, Dr. Uh, Kilgore, if you want to call in any time to any of our future webinars, we would be happy to have you back. Um, but I think this would be a really important thing for us to have the, the so for those of you following us, 
the, the Lieutenant Governor uh, uh, Garland Gilchrist would be with us and also Representative Mari Minujian, who is our local representative, who is a wonderful, um, uh, incredible politician. And uh, we also are gonna have with us the um, pastor of the leading uh, African-American church in Detroit, um, the Reverend uh, Charles Christian Adams, who's a good friend of mine. And then we're gonna have the Episcopal Bishop, uh, the right Reverend uh, Bonnie Perry will be with us for that discussion. And then in, in, a, in another week's time on the 29th of, of April, we're gonna have Charles Blow, who is a columnist for the uh, New York Times. And he has done some incredible work on the intersection of race, inequality, and the pandemic. And, and we're gonna have a, a similarly star-studded group around him. We're gonna have Angela Dillard, who is a historian from the University of Michigan and is an extraordinary um, writer. So our um, uh, a note is coming up to you all. Um, uh, for those of you following at home that uh, where you can, you can register for these two different webinars and find out more about them. And we would be delighted to have you join us then. Um, as, a closing, as a closing bit, I, we do have some questions that have been left on, but we did, I think, cover many of the topics that are there. Um, what, uh, one of the things that I would like to maybe draw is um, what I found hopeful, Dr. Berry, in your book is uh, you talk uh, about the need for wonder. Uh, and uh, of course, you see wonder as a naturalistic um, uh, interest. I, I, when I think of wonder, also think about the kind of concentrated meditation and deliberate curiosity about making um, things large out of things small. And, um, and that, that gives me a lot of hope when you shared about that. You also shared about the, the sense of camaraderie and connectivity that, that went across a society. And then finally, you talked about transparency as being key. And I'm wondering and, and if you could talk about each of those things as we go forward. Um, you know, I think Dr. Kilgore is a great example of, of wonder being alive and well in this pandemic. And, um, and connectivity um, is, I hope, something that's going to be um, uh, 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 increased by this. You know, I, I think we've learned our mistake of letting the, the World Health Organization and other uh, uh, major investments in public health um, fall by the wayside. Yeah. And, uh, and then finally, um, uh, transparency. It seems like uh, we're learning again why people tell the truth uh, as much as they can. Uh, can you, you close with maybe just speaking about each of those three uh, virtues um, um, uh, in your own ways? Well, I think you just did a good job of it. So I can take it over to Dr. Kilk. Uh, you know, to me, uh, wonder is sort of create, you know, involves creativity and, you know, perhaps you awe is part part of that. Uh, it doesn't stop you; it starts you. Uh, you know, a natural curiosity, and uh, I'm not sure if by connectivity you and I would mean the same thing. Uh, I'm thinking in terms of the creative process 
or at least that's what I'll talk about now is, uh, you know, often that involves something as simple as connecting something that is way uh, over here. I don't know if you can see in the camera, I guess you can, to way over here that people don't normally connect, but as soon as someone makes that connection, it seems inherently obvious. It's a kind of, uh, you know, I see creativity as both a vertical depth, diving down deep into something and horizontal, connecting things that other people don't see as connected, but become obvious uh, once that happens. I think that's where a lot of major leaps occur, whether you want to, it's not exactly interdisciplinary, but, but it's an open mind being alert to all sorts of things uh, and, and seeing how it might mean something in a different context. Uh, in terms of transparency, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, I was part of, you know, in the Bush administration, they started uh, preparedness planning, a $7 billion bill and, and everything from starting the national stockpile, uh, investing in vaccine technology and manufacturing, and part of it was, was planning. Uh, and in those first groups, planning about what social distancing measures should come out of them. And I always pushed the idea that telling the truth was the most important lesson from 1918, what we talked about at the very beginning, comparing uh, Philadelphia to San Francisco. Uh, nobody in those groups ever disagreed with me. Uh, I don't really like the phrase risk communication because it implies managing the truth. And I think you don't manage the truth, you tell the truth. Uh, and that is actually written into the federal pandemic preparedness plan, transparency, and every plan of the 50 states. But you still have to have someone who will go out and actually do it. Uh, in 1918, we had no Tony Fauci. Fortunately, Tony's there now. Um, I wish we had a little more transparency uh, out of the White House. Can you hear me okay? Yes. <laughs> that was, you know, you both are so articulate. I It's hard to follow, but um, I, you know, one thing that occurred to me, I was sitting eating breakfast a few days ago, and all of a sudden a phrase popped into my mind, and the phrase was, the power of small. And what I meant by that, I think at the time was that, you know, we are actually faced with this situation because of something so small, we cannot actually see it. But the power of how that small virus can impact billions of people is just almost unimaginable. The other part of the, you know, the power of small is that what I've discovered is that even very, very small things that people can do right now for their own health, help protect them in the future against coronavirus or COVID-19. Small steps every day, like getting enough sleep, trying to eat a better diet, staying, um, eating uh, more fruits and vegetables, easy, simple stuff, exercising a little bit more, maybe relaxing a little bit more if they have time. And then the other part of the power of small is the communication part of it. Even small communications, it could be a simple text that I get or a simple message or a phone call can be so powerful in getting the word out to people who need to hear it or getting a message to key people. And 
I began to realize, you know, it's these small things that we're doing every day that can really transform lives. And, and so I'm really trying to do that now. That's quite beautiful. Uh, anything from you, Pastor, that you want to offer? Um, no, I just, um, I'm thankful for you both. I think you, um, you both help help um, alleviate some of the, the difficulty of going through this, um, both by your, your cogent analysis of what happened in, um, in 1918, but also, also the, the tenor of what you're describing today. Um, so super grateful for your work, Dr. Barry, in the public realm and public policy. You know, keep being a champion for all of us. We need you. And, um, and Dr. Kilgore, um, you're my new hero. <laughs> so um, thank you for your hard work in Detroit and do continue to let us know how we can support you. Yeah, and I would say that is the, the one thing that I think gets underestimated uh, is uh, we are a leading church in the area and um, I'm extraordinarily proud of my congregation because of the level of investment that we've been making uh, in different ways. So one of the things that we've recently supported heavily was a group that just brings some nurture to healthcare workers in the form of a meal. And we're now moving to food security because right now as we see things, things are getting difficult there in terms of um, gleaners, forgotten harvests, other feeding programs no longer can take the surplus of uh, distributors, they actually have to buy their food and they can't rely on volunteers like they used to. And so we're making targeted investments there um, to, to try to, to move the needle and to make sure people get food. And we're now moving to economic insecurity is gonna be our, our in May, we're gonna shift to economic insecurity because we know that once the governor lifts the, um, the ban on, on, on businesses and things like that, and the ban on on foreclosures and also uh, evictions, people are gonna be in arrears. Um, so we were working to do that as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm incredibly proud of my, of my congregation. And if there are things that you need um, and you will know uh, best what you need, um, if you could keep us in mind, um, uh, we have about 2000 members and, uh, and I would say to a person, uh, we are incredibly committed to making this this city um, more humane and, and civil, and 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 loving, and building the beloved community. Um, for those of you who have come in, uh, I want to apologize um, uh, for not answering every single one of your questions, um, and uh, I want to ask your. Um, uh, uh, your grace and permission and forgiveness as we continue to move on and to plunge ahead in these incredibly challenging uh, conversations, but so informative. And I'm so grateful for each of you tonight. Uh, Dr. Barry, it's, you're one of my, my heroes. Uh, so I'm so grateful to have met you, um, honestly. You, you're an incredible you, writer, an incredible historian, and you do incredibly you. uh, courageous work. And Dr. Kilgore, um, I, I think Manisha's right. You are, you are doing a heroic and, and wonderful work. And so we are so grateful for you. And um, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's close this out. Thank you all for being here. Um, I'm gonna actually do a classic uh, prayer uh, from memory. So no one quote me, 
from the Book of Common Prayer. So if you all will just take a moment and I'll do it in the usual way. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Uh, keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. Have your angels watch over those who sleep. Care for the sick, dear Lord. Soothe the suffering and shield the, the joyous. All for your love's sake. Amen. Amen. Are you going to finish it faster? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. No, I was I rushed you. It. I was like, I was like, get in there. But, I was like, oh, right. is he going to remember? Yes. <laughs> Thank you all so much. God bless you guys. Thank, Thank you very much. You too. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christchurch Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristchurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christchurch Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.